Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content from all of our podcasts, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There's no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you right now from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, I am joined today by two friends, one Clive Priddle, who is publisher at Public Affairs, with whom I have worked on numerous books for which uh, anything that is good in the books, he gets credit for, and anything that isn't, I take the blame for. That's our deal. And I think we've had that deal for 17 years now, Clive. But Terrifying thought, but thank you. Nice to be here. Yes, yes. You were unchanged in, in all that time. And also by Max Bergman. Max is the director of the Europe program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. How are you doing today, Max? Doing well. Thanks for having me, David. Good. There's just been so much happening in foreign policy, even though you know we're focused on hearings and 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 January 6th and an upcoming election and the economy. I thought it'd be good to sort of take a step back and, and look at a couple of the more significant events. One of the things that caused me to do that was that I had written a column on what happened with Boris Johnson, in which I, you know, sort of played off of the uh, British flair for political satire and the sort of semi-comic aspects to Johnson's tenure, although I did note that, uh, you know, these things would be comic were it not for the enormous amount of damage he did. And I got a response to that from Clive, who provided sort of more insight in a couple of paragraphs into what really was going on with both Johnson and Conservative Party and, and, and the UK, then I'd read someplace else. So I just said, why don't you come on, Clive, and why don't we use that to kick off the discussion? You want to talk about what you said a little? Well, thank you. I've got to say, the one thing I never thought I would do on a podcast is end up in any way seeming to defend Boris Johnson, but life is strange. What I was saying to you the other day was... A lot of people making a sort of easy comparison between Johnson and Trump. And I think there's some very important differences going on here. Not just that Johnson, he may be a blowhard and a fool and a, you know, a blustering nincompoop, um, but he hasn't committed any high crimes or misdemeanors. He really hasn't. He's held some parties. He's told a lot of lies. And he probably has had extramarital relations with more women than is prudent if you want to have an orthodox political career. But none of these gets close to the level that we would look for in the US if we wanted to impeach him. What he's done is become electorally a little difficult for the conservatives, and they've lost their patience with him. 
And then something else that's interesting to me is they've got rid of him. The Conservative Party and the political, British political system makes it possible for a leader who was elected with the most significant majority for a Conservative since Margaret Thatcher, an 87-seat, I believe, majority when he was first elected, to be thrown out by his own party. Now, you could say this is a terribly undemocratic act. What about all those poor voters who voted for him? And I have some sympathy with that point of view. And I suspect that whoever is elected to succeed Boris Johnson is going to have to defend that um, as well. Uh, they are not going to have a popular mandate. But the system worked in the UK partly because of the lack of fixed terms for the political parliament. It makes MPs anxious. Although it usually is understood as conferring an advantage to the governing party and the prime minister in particular, because he or she can call the date of the election, having the possibility of parliament end early also introduces a little uncertainty, a little um, you know, wiggle into the system. And it means that it is theoretically possible at any moment for any parliament to be abbreviated, and that empowers MPs. It empowers MPs, and, it, and that in turn empowers voters. Boris Johnson lost his job because of two horrible by-election losses, one of which was predictable and bearable, and the other of which was off the chart and scared conservative MPs. So this strange system that they have in the UK, which lacks a lot of formal constitutional points, has actually accomplished a political act here that we in America were incapable of, of accomplishing. And one of the reasons is that our political system is so rigid, our, our fixed terms are so rigid, that senators especially are not motivated to step in, and they don't. That's the second time I've heard this analysis, and it sounds just as cogent and on point to me now as it did then. What do you think, Max? I agree with what Kwai said. I think there's a brilliance to the parliamentary system where you can remove leaders when they're not fit for a purpose. And the, the, I think part of what also happened is that it's a very different environment right now in 2022 than it was when Boris Johnson was, was elected. Uh, the effects of Brexit are being felt. We're kind of in a post-COVID environment. The economic challenges are really significant. And I think while Johnson has played Ukraine very well and has been quite effective and was, was able to sort of pivot very quickly. He was under a lot of pressure in the early period of the war, given the amount of uh, Russian money that had, had funneled into the, the conservatives and his ties with a number of Russian oligarchs in the UK. Uh, it pivoted very quickly to be one of the stalwart allies for Ukraine. But the economic challenges facing the UK right now are, are incredibly significant. And I think one of the things that we're seeing with, with Brexit is that there's this idea pushed but actually implementing Brexit, actually going through with the divorce is very messy uh, and actually requires in order for it to be orderly and productive and to not have as much economic damage on the United Kingdom uh, is a healthy working relationship with the European Union. Now, none of Boris Johnson's successors are, are advocating that. But one of the things that I think reality has sort of caught up with the Brexit movement, with the populist movement within the conservatives that Johnson, I think, represented. and that was not as popular anymore. And so then you add on to that all the scandals that we saw over the last few months, Johnson being seen as, as morally not up to the task. And it's a combination for dethronement. And I think one of the things that is very different than Donald Trump is that the populism sort of lost its, has lost some of its shine 
not just in the UK, but in other countries throughout Europe, where you see populist leaders do fairly well on some elections, but not get nearly, you know, not sort of get over the hump of actually winning, winning elections. Le Pen did fairly well, but Macron in France beat her fairly, fairly substantially. So I think we've seen to some degree a populist left wave may have crested in Europe. And I, I think it's to be seen in the United States, whether that's the case and whether we've kind of now moved on from the issues that sort of gave rise to populism in the mid-teens of rising migration and migration and all the other kind of economic challenges, dislocation and resentment over Iraq war and Afghanistan, both in the US and UK. So we'll see. I think, you know, it's a big question of whether this plays forward in the United States, and that's something we'll have to look forward to. It's a really weighty point. If the populist wave has crested, that's got global significance because that populist wave swept not just across Europe, but around the world. You know, it, it didn't just affect Boris Johnson, uh, the rise of Le Pen, who did better, by the way, this last time than she's done before. There were Orban or the far right in Italy or in Poland or, or Trump. But we also have Bolsonaro. We have a kind of ethno-nationalist movement of, uh, of Modi in, in India, etc. And so, Clive, one of the questions, if this is significant, part of uh, you know maybe moving past that wave and maybe Trump faltering is another issue we'll come to in a second. You know, maybe Putin was behind this. He seems to have miscalculated rather seriously in Ukraine. Then we're going to look for clues, right? You know, is this what it could be, as Max describes? And that leads to the question, Clive, of What's next in the UK? Because there's some people who are very Boris Johnson-y types. There's some people in the Conservative Party like, and I, I hope I get his name right, but like Tom Tugendhat, is that how you say it? Who is more anti-Johnson but conservative, more sort of throwback to prior idea of conservative. Where does this go? Do we end up with the Ron DeSantis of the UK? Yes. Who is the Ron DeSantis of the UK? Probably Lynn Truss, who's one of the candidates. So there are, there are, as of a few minutes ago, there are eight people who will go to the next round of voting to be the next leader in Britain. And it's a very interesting cast of characters. Only two of the eight can claim not to be Johnson enablers. And so if that is really a thing, if that matters, then those two candidates should find their way preferred. I don't think they will. I don't think that's going to help them. I think there's a lot of people out there, especially in the Conservative membership, not the MPs, but the, the, the ordinary party members who get the, the, the final defining vote on the next leader. I don't think they do feel as bitter as all that about Johnson, even if they think he's a clown and has made an embarrassment of himself. Not sure they're going to be persuaded that um, he is a disqualifying factor. So yeah, you're getting some very interesting versions of conservatism, not, not entirely coherent amongst the candidates, which is interesting in itself for a party that ostensibly likes to think that it has joined up thinking and consistency. I'll also say that it is a very ethnically diverse group. You have one woman whose heritage is Nigerian. You have two from Southeast Asia. And it's a more ethnically diverse set of leadership candidates than I, I would have expected, and I, frankly, than I think the Labour Party would generate right now. So that's kind of an interesting thing going on in the UK. 
But the most, the most um, sobering job for whoever takes on this task is going to be that everything in the economy is worse than the Conservatives said it would be. And I think contributing to that as well is that everything in Europe is worse than everybody thought it would be. It may be politically difficult for a conservative Brexiteer to say our economy is not doing so great and Europe is doing fine. But actually, it's probably worse for Britain that Europe is hurting badly. I don't think anybody had anticipated the effect of the war in Ukraine on you know, gas in Germany and all that that might imply in terms of industrial production. And I believe that Macron's situation in France is extremely vulnerable. He doesn't look like he's going to have a happy second term. If we don't see the gilet jaune back on the streets in France in the next seven years, I'd be very, very surprised. So Europe looks fractured, bruised by the politics and the consequences of Ukraine, perhaps not even of one mind on how to carry out a policy towards Ukraine. And Britain, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, uh, since I do have a little bit of patriotism left, I think it looks, it looks adrift. It looks like it doesn't have any authority to bring cohesion to policy in Europe. And pretty soon, I think it's going to wonder what on earth its purpose is, as perhaps we anticipated it should in the 1960s. Max, one way I could put the follow-up is Boris Johnson may have been brought down by his unsavory behavior, but he may also have been brought down by 11.5% inflation, Europe world-leading inflation. And as uh, they say on Twitter, I wonder if inflation is going to bring down more leaders asking for a friend. It's like, is the Democratic Party in the US going to suffer the same fate? Is this what is weakening Macron? You know, I mean, because it comes down to, did the populist wave crest? Or alternatively, are we just in an economic morass, which paradoxically is in part brought about by the fact that Europe stayed united on the security side, has put down the hammer in, in Ukraine and put very serious sanctions on Russia. And that's had some inflationary effects that have compounded the effects associated with the post-COVID supply chain breakdowns and other, other factors that were inflationary. What do you think? You know, as you look at all of Europe, is that the, 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 the driver of the big wave? I think it's a mixed bag. I think in the UK, I think that obviously the economic situation is is not good. But I think that in part rebounded really negatively on Boris Johnson, where when you put off sort of a clownish populist persona that doesn't strike every, everyone as, as serious, then you have all these scandals. Brexit is an economic net negative that, that's acting as a drag. The picking of fights with your largest trading partner, the European Union, all these things, I think, added up to a frustration that Boris Johnson wasn't the right leader for the present time to go into the next election. And so I think, yes, if you took out the inflationary effects on the UK economy, if we were sort of back in kind of a 2019 situation, does Johnson get removed as leader? I don't think so. The inflation is putting political leaders around the world under a microscope, and some of them aren't, aren't coming out that well. I do think, though, that when we think about Europe overall, I think we really underestimate the strength and resilience of the European project writ large, that if you think about the last decade, you know, crisis after crisis from migration crisis to COVID to the Euro crisis, Europe has actually come out of those, those crises stronger. And I think that's what's going to happen here when it comes to inflation and the energy crisis. 
And it is much more the case in Europe than in the United States that their crisis is being driven by the fact that energy prices are skyrocketing and Russia's cutting off gas flows and they're, they're cutting off oil flows. And this is the energy spike is causing real pain to Europeans. But this is something that they are all, I think, largely articulating well as political leaders, that this is the cause of Russia, that Putin is going to cut off gas flows and they're preparing their populations for potential rationing this winter. It's going to be a very rough winter in Europe. It's probably going to lead to an economic recession. But I think political leadership in this moment is indicating who's to blame for that. And I think political leaders, particularly in Germany, will do okay. Now, they're going to get their bruises. I think Macron's political situation is, is not, not fantastic. However, he was reelected. And to be reelected in France is, is quite an achievement. I think that's one we often overlook. So to me, I think this is a big political stress test for Europe. I think it's going to come through it. I think they're going to, European Union is taking dramatic steps that is going to try to get through the winter. There's going to be some rationing. Prices are going to be high. But I think they're also preparing their publics for this. Now, that doesn't mean there's not going to be populist space on the right. Italy is a major question, uh, in particular, if Draghi leaves the scene and there are elections. But I think Ukraine has also focused the mind that what is this about? This is about standing up to an autocrat that has invaded another democratic country and that Europe needs to stand up. And I think that that sort of unity is still there and I think will be present throughout this crisis. And I think it's one that political leaders are going to tap very frequently uh, throughout the next year. Yeah, I think that also is a very interesting observation, Clive, because there have been a couple of moments in the course of the past couple decades when people have said, oh, no, Europe's on the ropes. This, this idea is not going to work. When you had you know, the Greece crisis and the, and, and the broader debt crisis throughout Europe, when, when Brexit happened, when you know, Donald Trump is saying, I'm going to pull out of NATO, I'm going to reduce the U.S. troops in Europe. I, and when the U.S. And, and Europe were in the throes of kind of uh, trade spats during the Trump administration, those were all moments of weakness. And yet here we are with NATO expanding, with NATO countries, including Germany, that had been very reticent in this regard, very reluctant in this regard, to uh, you know, increase the amount they're spending on defense, with you know, some discussion about countries like Ukraine uh, joining the EU in some capacity or being on a track to do that, with the US recommitted to the alliance and playing a constructive role. It looks like against the odds, the idea of Europe is proving its strength by surviving these crises. See, I think NATO is proving its strength. NATO is an organization that is perfectly placed to respond to Ukraine and has done so. And it's been very reassuring that it's done so. It's going to get new members and it's going to get members, interestingly, from outside the EU. I'm absolutely less convinced that the EU as a political entity is going to thrive because of this, because the EU doesn't move quickly, never has. It lacks the senior leaders of generations gone by. I mean, whatever you thought of Angela Merkel, she was you know, a rock on which you could build a lot of policy. Schultz is not that person. Macron, I think, has looked slightly foolish in terms of his indulgence of trying to negotiate with Putin when there was no negotiation to be had. And the rise of the nationalist vote in France is real. So that's a vote against the wider European project. So I, I do think if you, if you take the long view of Europe, 
I think it is not coming together. I think it is coming apart. I think the project is weaker than it was. I think it lacks the same confidence and leadership that it once had. I think NATO is different. It's like, you know, when we look at presidents' foreign policy and domestic policy here, actually Biden's done, I think, a pretty good job in terms of how he has handled U.S. foreign policy, with the possible exception of the southern border. You know, you could say that he's got a very experienced crew. They're managing things well. Nobody really is picking a fight with Biden in terms of his foreign policy. But his domestic policy or his ability to communicate a domestic policy is, is pretty dreadful. And he's suffering terribly in the polls. EU is like the domestic policy for Europe. And it's not pretty. I think, I think it's going to be grim. What do you think of that, Max? I, frankly, I've been, a, although I, it's hard to argue with what Clive has just said, Ursula von der Leyen has actually done a pretty good job. She's been at the forefront of this. She's managed to move the EU fairly quickly in commitments to provide rebuilding aid to Ukraine and, and to move them along on, on, on some of these energy issues. I think it is interesting that the leadership structure of the EU is not what we thought it was going to be, and that particularly on this Ukraine issue, the forward-leaning countries are the Baltics and Poland and, and, and Germany and France have been lagging. You know, they, they haven't been the engines of this. But, but what do you think of Clive's critique? First, agree on the, on the NATO bit. I mean, this is sort of NATO has kind of gone back to the future, back to its kind of original core mission of deterring the Russians. And you can sort of, I was at the Madrid conference and you can sort of sense the energy and sense of purpose in the NATO alliance. And I think that is, uh, you know, the Biden administration deserves a, a ton of credit for really reviving it. But I would strongly disagree with Clive. I think if you take the longer view, what you see is a union that is growing stronger and coming closer together. And I think that's one of the things that we, you know, got used to always saying Europe is in crisis, and it frequently is. But then it comes out of that crisis and it becomes stronger. It's the classic uh, Monet quote, who's one of the founding fathers of the EU of the European project that Europe will be forged in crisis. And I think in part, we're seeing that in the Ukraine crisis. The EU for the first time has started providing lethal military assistance to Ukraine, 2 billion euros. And I think when you see on the energy side is that the Europeans taking a, a really strong response in trying to figure out how to decouple from Russia as quickly as possible and pushing through practical, uh, practical steps that you know, may increase emissions in the short term, but really are looking to accelerate the, the clean energy transition, I think, in, in the medium term. And the other thing I would say is that part of the reason why Europe is in this big, big economic crunch and in this huge political fight is how forward-leaning the EU has been on sanctions. It is the EU that determines sanctions policy for the 27 member states because they all have to agree to it together. Member states can agree on their own, but really it's force walls a block. And the EU has been far stronger than anyone anticipated prior to the war. I talked to a number of U.S. officials sort of game planning out how this would work. And, and their view was like, oh, well, you know, the Europeans are going to be really hesitant to go along. And what was happening is the Europeans were moving faster than the Americans in some respects. The central bank sanctions were sort of initiated by Draghi and Yellen getting on the phone together, two central bankers, figuring out that they could sanction the central bank. So I'm actually quite bullish on the European project. I think you see that with Zelensky, that his major goal is not to join NATO, is to join the European project, because 
for Ukraine, they feel this real belonging. You really feel it when you're outside the European project. When you think about Brexit, part of the UK strategy on Brexit was to try to divide the EU. Theresa May and Johnson were trying to, in negotiations, work, you know, divide the 27, work with some of the Eastern Europeans, weaken the European stance, sort of divide and rule. And the EU hung together. And Brexit has been this real cautionary tale for other European EU member states where no one really is talking about leaving the EU. Le Pen is arguing, yes, to, to modify certain things, but this whole Frexit or Grexit or other ex exits, simply not on the table. Now, an economic recession, massive calamities, sure, if we want to project ahead and you know, worst case outcomes, you know, that could certainly reemerge. But I, I tend to take the glass half full here when it comes to the European project, because frankly, if you look back over the last 70 years, I, it's shocking where, how far I think it's come. See, I think we're talking about two, two are you, the glass half full, glass half empty is, is a great analogy because I think you're talking about the architecture of the EU. And there's a, that unquestionably is more sophisticated now. It's the, with every passing year, it gets, it, it gets more robust, partly just because time has passed and it hasn't broken. I guess what I meant was I'm not sure that this architecture is going to carry popular support for very long. And, you know, we just hit a moment, I think, where the euro and the dollar hit parity. That is going to be a moment that people are going to feel in a different way. And we haven't actually had an electoral test of this new European test of, of, the, of, the, of the Ukraine situation. We haven't had a moment where the voters in Lyon and Provence and, uh, you know, Italy are going to have an opportunity to say, well, here's what I think of what my government's been doing in my name through this EU architecture. I guess I was referring more to that than to the institutional pieces of the EU, which I kind of agree with you. They proved to be more robust. So at this point in the broadcast, as uh, those of you who listen regularly know, we say goodbye to our listeners from the general public with an admonition, which is if you want to listen to the whole broadcast, the best thing to do is to go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership and become a member. And then you can listen to all of our broadcasts. And, and that's a lot of bonus content. You get a lot of other benefits as well, as you will see if you go to the site. It's only $5 a month. And we're doing incredible things. We've got more programming, more high-level programming, more great guests than we've ever had before. And so this is your opportunity to go sign up. And then you can listen to the rest of the broadcast. For those of you who are members already, you're in luck. We'll begin again in one moment.